This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Imani Perry, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. I'm going to quote you for a second because there's a great line from one of the chapters in your new book, South to America, where you write, language has direction, it demands a listener or a reader, and it lands accordingly. Your new book is all about putting context to conversations that we're having right now in America. And wow, mm-hmm. is that context missing? Yeah. Can I ask how and when you decided to write this book? Oh, gosh. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I just absolutely am thrilled about this opportunity. I don't have a particular start date. I mean, I I keep saying, and I really mean this, it's not just like sort of a trite thing to say. I've been writing this book my whole life because I've been going back and forth to the South as I've come of age. And I've been struggling my whole life with understanding how profound a place it is, how much it shapes the way the country has developed, the way the country operates, and how deeply that's misunderstood. So, I mean, I guess I started in earnest writing three or four years ago, but all of this has been turning over my in my head for a lifetime. Okay. And the book is cut up into three parts. Mm. There's origin studies, the solidified South, and water people. Yes. Can we talk about the structure? Can we talk about how you settled sure. those titles? One of the things that I confronted as I was actually writing is that I had a very particular idea of what the South was that comes from Alabama, right, where I was born. And that is the deep South and there's particular habits and ways of being. They're shaped by environment. They're shaped by the fact that it was a part of the South that was settled in the very early 1800s as opposed to earlier. And as I was traveling and also recounting places I'd been, I started to say to myself, okay, these are there are Souths, plural. And the physical environment and the particular history of that place, what the removal of indigenous people looked like in that particular place, what slavery looked like in that particular place, which African people were there, all of these parts, you know, which Europeans were there, all of these things shaped each part. And so the structure has a kind of chronological piece, but also thinking about a region in terms of its environment and or regions, plural. The sections of the book are an effort to kind of shape how we understand the distinctiveness of each of these sub-regions of the South, both in terms of how they're shaped by environment and also the histories of those places. So you start in Appalachia, actually. Yeah. And I wasn't quite expecting that. I was thinking since you were from Birmingham Mm -hmm. and your mother has history in New Orleans that you might start working your way. So why Appalachia? You know, so the book is both this historical inquiry and also personal discovery and also trying to read the nation. And one of the things that was interesting for me in my genealogical research was to realize, well, actually, the further I go back in my own family history, we actually go up in the South as opposed to down, right? So, you know, in Northern Alabama, which is where my grandparents were from, my maternal grandparents, is technically Appalachia. And then, you know, I have ancestry in various branches that are in the mountains. And so I thought, okay, well, this is a great way to challenge my idea of the South from the outset, you know? And so, and also I had sort of emotional attachments to Harper's Ferry. It's a place that I had been before. Growing up, my dad had a map of Harper's Ferry on his, his wall. And so the heroism of John Brown, that history was sentimental to me. And so I thought, okay, well, this is a place to, to kind of try to dig into things. So I did. One of the things that I love about how you handle each of these chapters, and each chapter is grounded in a place. Yes. But it's not just the place. I mean, for instance, 
coming back to Appalachia for a second, mining yes, and power yes. and the power that goes with mining. You cannot separate the legacy of American miners and American mining and American business interests from this region. And Black miners certainly got the very short shrift Absolutely. in the entire equation. And you have this great line that equates moonshine with the legacy of Davy Crockett and Ralph Waldo Emerson, which mm-hmm. I quite appreciated. And uh, you say drinking hooch is a flirtation with danger because mm-hmm. obviously you might die. But the larger point you're making is, I wonder, can we see that these are Davy Crockett's grandchildren, heirs to the king, the wild frontier, who could shoot a gun and split a bullet in half with an axe? They're the manifestations of Ralph Waldo Emerson's mandate of self-creation and recognition of the power of experience. One of the things you're really talking about in this book is the mythology of America. Yes. And we have created language. We have taken story elements out of context, our own story elements out of context. Yeah. And you know, we have multiple creation dates for this country and our society and our culture mm-hmm. and whatnot. And this is something you come back to in each chapter, which I really appreciated. I mean, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but at one point you're saying, well, Birmingham isn't just 1963. Yes. To look at 37 and 79 and 83 as well. Mm-hmm. So as you're going through, you're starting with your personal experience. You're in all of these places over time. How are you making decisions about what to layer in? Because you don't want this to read solely like research. I mean, these are very human no. stories. Harper's Ferry, you talk to a reenactor. Yes. Yes which I did not anticipate being able to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to talk to a Confederate reenactor. There are stories we have about what the nation is. I went to school in New England. Mm -hmm. And so I read Emerson. I read the, I read, you know, Puritan sermons, errand in the wilderness, self-creation. I don't know what is a more potent story of an errand in the wilderness than Appalachia, right? Like, what does it mean? And it's still happening. People are still confronting the wild and it has multiple dimensions. So it is actually about nature and the hard living in the mountains, but it's also about going deep into the earth. It's about foraging for food. It's about economic vulnerability. It's about this multi-generational struggle, knowing that you are people who power the nation, right? That the nation is built in part on your labor and still being hungry and still being desperate. And also those people not being situated the same way, that race and and gender, all these dimensions of experience matter. And then also, of course, labor, the labor movement and the importance of the labor movement in the South. We, we talk about the civil rights movement. We don't talk about labor in the South nearly as much as part of the national story. So in each place, I'm trying to go into exactly as you said, what are the narratives about who we are and how to think about them through the material experiences of people's lives historically and presently in order to give them more substance, more dimension, more texture, right? And to actually bring them to human experience, right? Like the blood and guts of what it means to live, right? And that I'm moving through these places and I'm talking to people, but there's also, you know, the mental Rolodex we always have. People talk and you interpret what they say based upon what's already in your head. I try to be transparent about that, but then also to kind of interrogate it. And there's various moments where I'm talking to people and I'm like having this conflict internally, like, for example, with the Confederate reenactor, right, who I want to be, you know, warm and fuzzy with. But I'm also like this guy, like, why do you want to be a Confederate, (laughs) you know? And so that tension is all through it. You also mentioned Doris Payne, and I was really happy to see her name. I think there are probably some listeners who don't 
know Doris's story, but I was delighted yes. to know that she was from this neck of the woods. I had no idea that she yeah. was from there. Well, she's, she is a Black woman who was a phenomenal jewel thief <laughs> over the years. And her story is really interesting because it's one of those examples of how, you know, this sort of American love, not just for underdogs, but for people who stick it to the system. You know, here's this rural Black Southern woman who breaks the law constantly and has champions all over the world and all these sectors of society because it's like she's an extraordinary jewel thief. She's extraordinarily elegant. She tells this story of how she stole her first piece of jewelry. She's from Appalachia and she was given a gift of for her father. She could buy a watch and then she goes into the store and the shopkeeper sort of dismisses her to serve white customers instead and she slips a watch into her pocket. And it's a sort of subversion. I'm going to like stick it to the society that sees me as inferior. I'm not worthy as a customer. She just has a wonderful story in general. But part of what resonated for me about her that struck me as really important for this section is that she's part of this tradition of mountain folks who kind of remake themselves. Like whether we're talking about the the woman who was the welfare queen or Dolly Parton, there's this like kind of fantastical quality, this part of the storytelling tradition of the South, but it's also like the self-creation thing is really kind of rich and beautiful there. And so she's an example of that place. And the flip side of that, though, is Linda Taylor, who Ronald yes. Reagan turned into his welfare queen. Yeah. And I put that in air quotes. Yes. But that's essentially someone who people in power decided was abusing the system. Right. And had stepped out of line. Yes. And had not, in fact, successfully remade herself. Right. She was simply abusing what right. was in front of her. And the context, I think, matters. I think we are missing a lot of the conversation that came out of the 80s. Mm. We're living in, oh, maybe I shouldn't say momentous moment in American history and in the American experiment. We seem to be having a rough go of it. Yes. To be polite. But the 80s loom large in oh. each section because how could they not? How yes. could they not, when you're talking about the American South and you're talking about labor and you're talking about the legacy of the civil rights movement, yeah. and we keep skipping that piece of our history? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we skip it because the 80s, they have been so mythologized in a mm -hmm. way that has allowed us to sort of disregard how much the 80s were a period of retrenchment. The civil rights movement is hailed as this sort of glorious social transformation. But in point of fact, you know, within 15 years after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, 12 years after the passage of the Fair Housing Act, you see a political backlash, right? When Reagan announces his candidacy in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where three civil rights workers were murdered, that is a very deliberate choice. And the kind of the hagiography, the romance of the 80s is sort of getting things back to normal. I mean, it's just this remarkable disregard for that as a period in which narratives about race, old ones, were kind of passionately re-embraced. And about Black people, but about lots of people, <laughs> about Latino folks, about immigrants. It's just sort of like this across the board. It's this remarkable and, and in many ways devastating period. Linda Taylor is really interesting, both because, you know, she is seen as the symbol of the effort to remediate 
run amok. It's so bad to try to sort of remediate all of the injustice of racism in U.S. history. And she's also painted in a way that shows how flat-footed the discussions about race are. She was a sort of interesting racial changeling of sorts. She crossed color lines. Her birth was ambiguous. Was she black? Was she white? She's recategorized throughout her life. So her story becomes one in which you see how absurd actually the color lines have always been because people can be red and slip into, you know, into different kinds of roles over time. But the narratives are so powerful that they overwhelm. Similarly, for me, the story of the South is also part of the story of the 80s and Central America. That is such a Southern history, right, where the way the United States actually and Southerners are involved in controlling the economies of Central America. So the 80s is this moment of like trying to re-grasp control, you know, Nicaragua, Guatemala, all these. And then also because when you look historically to see the patterns of migration, like now when we're talking about, oh, all of this migration from Central America, this is not new. These are cycles of movement that have been going on for a hundred years. So even just understanding who was where, when, that what is described to us as sort of these new moments that we should see as a crisis, there's a single region here that is, is really sort of the Southern United States, the Caribbean, Central America, Mexico, that has always been subject to sort of reconfiguration and relationship to each other. I just think it helps us think more honestly about who and what we are and have been. And let's also look at who's staffing chicken plants right now. Yes. In the United United States. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's Mexican and Central American people. And again, you know, historically was African-Americans. But the point is that in both instances, both then and now, people who are staffing those plants are the people who are vulnerable, you know, who are not in a position to negotiate their labor fairly. That to me is the point, you know. And it reminds me quite a lot of the organizing in textile mills throughout the South in the 1970s. Yes. And that is not happening. We've actually seen workers in the South reject unionization efforts recently. And I find that very sad. It's heartbreaking. It's a lot to think about. But you also raise something that the theorist Walter Benjamin had brought up at one point. He was distinguishing between two types of storytellers. One is the keeper of the traditions. Another is the one who has journeyed afar and tells stories of other places. And then you bring in this very important point that there is a third point of view, and that's of the exile. And the story of the South in many ways is told by exiles. If you look at writers who have left the South, many who have returned at this point, but at some point, many, many Southern writers will leave in order to be able to tell the story of the South. And so we're filtering their experience through this moment of loss. I mean, you are leaving your community. You're leaving the place you consider home. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? One of the things that it means is that there's a bias towards trusting those who have left the South, right? And so, you know, so we have to be self-critical, I think. I also think it means that there's something that happens when you leave the South where you are actually confronted simultaneously with how grotesque the narratives of the South are in other regions of the country, and also how brutal the history of the South and present of the South are, right? So it's simultaneous, right? So there's a defensiveness I have had my whole life about the way people talk about the South. And there's also this realization that it is a hard living place. It's a place where people are poorer, 
It's a place where the air quality is dirtier. It's a place where the water is poisoned, right? And so to hold on to both simultaneously, there's something about stepping out of it that clarifies. And then most of all, there's an honesty about the South. As a quick example, having experienced so many more examples of sort of racial hostility and even violence in northern cities than southern ones, and so often people are surprised about that, particularly in New England, that it is not as though I'm saying that New England is more racist or whatever. I don't even know how you have those metrics, frankly, but that there's this surface that pretends that otherwise. There's a kind of honesty in the South about where people are have a kind of caution about each other and an honesty and a, a kind of in, in the way of dealing. And there there's something that actually for me feels much more comfortable there. I mean, I my personality is different. I'm not, I don't feel shy and guarded in the South the way that I do when I'm up here. And we know everything that's going on. Um, so I think that that's, that's a piece of it too. You have a really poignant question later in the book where you ask, given everything that we know about the South and given African-Americans' experience of the South, why would they stay? And then you yes. profile this really wonderful man called yes. uh, Dr. Walter Evans, who oh, I would- yes really like you to introduce him to listeners, but why would a man like Walter Evans and his wife stay? Right. So Walter Evans is a native of Savannah who has returned to Savannah, who moved up north first to Hartford as a teenager and then to Philadelphia and built his professional career. He was a a general surgeon in Detroit. And then upon retirement, returned to Savannah. And when I asked him, why did he return to Savannah? He said, there's no place in the world I'd rather be. And he is amongst other things, just a phenomenal collector. So you'll notice for those of you who've read David Blight's Prophet of Freedom, his biography of Frederick Douglass, it is dedicated to Walter Evans and his wife, Linda Evans. There's so many books that actually reference him, like the last two, I'm trying to think of the name, the the most recent biography of Malcolm X, similarly, is based upon letters of Malcolm X's that Walter shared with his friend. I mean, he's just this, you know, one of these people who's like his historic crossroads figure. And he has an remarkable art collection, you know, Romare Bearden, Jacob Lawrence. He's an executor, one of the executors of Jacob Lawrence's estate. I mean, he just, and so, I mean, talk about entering his home for the first time and it's like more impressive than any museum I've ever entered. You know, I mean, like that in terms of the collection of African-American art and also antiquarian collectibles. And at one point I was talking to him and he was like, yeah, there's a letter over there that Napoleon wrote to Toussaint Louverture in his, you know, in his, in his kitchen. So, and part of the reason we became close, he's probably the most important interlocutor for me in this book and that for months we talked weekly. He's someone who shared having left the South for New England and also spent a great deal of time in the Midwest and retained the deepest affection for the South and feeling like it was the place that he was most deeply nurtured, the place that created all this possibility for him to have this extraordinary career out in the world and also wanted to give back to the region of his birth in some way. And the thing about him that felt so distinctly Southern that I had, I really had to try to capture is that there's just this humility, like that he's just extraordinarily accomplished, but this sense that there's something deeply sort of ugly about putting on airs and believing you're superior and that it's important to see yourself as part of the salt of the earth and not to be sadiddy, to use a a word in Black English. (laughs) That is 
a kind of like being of the folk disposition that's seen as a virtue, you know, especially deep South culture was really, I mean, it resonated with me, but it also felt like, okay, this is really important as part of the story about this region. Community is something that I think we all think of when we think of the South, that there are very distinct communities within the South. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that earlier. Community does have its highs and it has its lows, certainly. And that's not just limited, obviously, to the South. But do you have a favorite moment from this book? Was there a moment that just brought you incredible joy as you were writing? There's a couple of them. I mean, one, I really loved my time with Joe Mentor, who is a yard artist in Alabama. Alabama has this extraordinary tradition of yard artists who use found objects, often metal, and these kind of sculpture gardens that make sense because of the steel mills in Birmingham and, and Bessemer. And he has this vast yard filled with art. It's history. It's theology. He's a Black man who wears a helmet all the time and has this house that is this deep, beautiful, saturated blue. And his yard is adjacent to two historic Black cemeteries that are guarded by wild dogs. You know, it's like a classic kind of picture of what the South is with its like sort of fantastical qualities. He's recognized in the art world. And has, again, no airs about him, no pretense that he really sees the work that he does as a creative person as part of the spiritual mission. So I just love being able to sort of recount what it was like to be close to him. There's moments of memory that I just love. I mean, I love going back to remembering how I used to stand behind my grandmother while she drank her coffee in the morning and try to elbow my cousins out of the way because I wanted to be the one right behind her. And the table that still exists in our home that she bought before I was born and that as I wrote, I could remember what it feels like to touch the table, right? The texture of it, the sensory parts that for me connect to the larger story. I think, you know, that's the part that was the most, I don't know, moving to, right? You and I share a similar <clears throat> view of home too, where home isn't a physical place. Yeah. It's, it's an idea. It's yeah. sometimes it's even just where I am at the moment, depending. Mm-hmm. And I love the way you talk about Birmingham in this book, but that's not the only place you think of as home. New Orleans, yeah. your mother's family has deep roots in New Orleans. My mother has roots in New Orleans. Okay. My biological father's family, which I don't really know, is okay. from New Orleans. And my godmother is from okay. New Orleans. It's a home where I've never lived. But as I walk around, I'm always like, some of these people are probably my cousins. Right? And like, my mother moved there when she was a teenager. So I grew up with someone who cooks in a New Orleans style. So the food that's most familiar to me, and I don't even know if she's sort of conscious of this, but I, I was wondering, is she, she cooks differently than her siblings. Like, what is that about? And so there's actually like a sensory visceral part of my connection to place. You have a story about your mom mm-hmm. in this book. Both of your parents were politically active mm-hmm. and very much part of the Southern movement, which I'm going to come back to, but sure. your mother was a nun. She was. And that's where she learned how to be a political activist. And that's not always a pairing that goes hand in hand in many people's mind. Right. <laughs> yes. How do how we get there, right? Please, please. <laughs> when I asked my mother, you know, why she entered the convent, she said, I wanted a life of meaning. And the convent she entered was the Sisters of the Holy Family. They are the second oldest order of Black nuns in the United States. They were founded in New Orleans by free women of color before emancipation. They were teaching Black children to read when it was illegal. Before Katrina had the oldest continuously running nursing home in the country, they have 
had schools, they were nuns who were of service and still are. You know, so as a late adolescent, that's the world she entered. And she also says part of the reason she exited, and this is very important because my mother says she didn't take final vows. So it wasn't a betrayal of the commitment to become a nun because she was there for a couple of years and she left. It was because of the move. The movement meant that she could find a life of meaning that wasn't in the order. But these women were extraordinary. And one of the things that I I think we forget, not just forget, but I think people don't really contemplate, that in an intensely patriarchal, white supremacist social order, for Black women to become nuns was in some ways, it was a kind of a feminist thing and a liberating thing, you know, because you could build a life and be in the world and do political work outside of the domination of men and sort of outside of the racial order in some ways. You know, they weren't working in positions where they were subject to kind of the daily humiliations of the segregationist society. You know, so they're a really important institution. And I think, too, not everyone knows that there is a tradition, actually, of nuns being very politically active yes. throughout Central and Latin America. So what we yes. call the global South. Absolutely. Like, this happened. Again, it's part of the way the history of the South is connected to a global history. The Sisters of the Holy Family have a mother house in Belize, and they have always had you know, nuns from the Caribbean and Latin America as well since the very inception, right, since the mid-19th century. So my mother, when she entered into the convent, there were more women from Honduras who entered into that group in New Orleans than women from other parts of the South. And I think that's, again, it's one of those you know, what submerged histories, but is so important to understand how we became who we are. A brief aside, how I became friends with Sarah Broom, who wrote The Yellow House, is that she talks about her mother and her aunt working at the Sisters of the Holy Family Order. And I'm like, oh, our mothers had to have been in those rooms at the same time. These webs of connection are remarkable. Pearl High in Nashville is also one of those webs. Yes. Eddie Gloud, who teaches with you at Princeton, mm-hmm. he has a familial connection there. Yes. He's not the only writer, but he's the one who comes to mind because I'm a huge fan of his work. Yes, he's amazing. But I love the idea that you and Sarah Broom have that overlap, too, yeah. in a different part of the country. I'm very fond of The Yellow House. Yes, it's, it's, it's a terrific it's book. Stunning, yeah. So my grandmother went to Pearl High in Nashville. And Eddie, I asked him, his grandmother went to Pearl High in Nashville. And then two other colleagues in the same building in the Department of African American Studies at Princeton also had parents or grandparents who went to Pearl High. This is an extraordinary part because none of us are from Nashville. I backed into recognizing here's one of these institutions during segregation that actually opened up possibility. It was an extraordinary high school. My grandmother didn't graduate from Pearl. Eddie's grandmother didn't graduate from Pearl. It's not like this bourgeois history of like, you know, this fancy school. It was an exceptional school, but part of what I think it gave students, whether or not it gave them sort of entry points to being middle class, it gave them a sense of aspiration and drive that then is translated generations later. And it's a submerged history. It's in the shadow of Vanderbilt University, but there it is, this illustrious place. I'll just say also, one day I posted a picture of Pearl on my Instagram page and one of my former students from Princeton was like, that's where I went to high school. So, you know, there are these, mo- you know, there are these moments. Dee Reese, the filmmaker, I talked to her and she said, oh yeah, my parents went to Pearl, right? So here's this exceptional place that's like not part of a collective consciousness. And I just think that's an- another piece to this story that's important. It's a reminder that we build our communities out of story yes. and that human connection. And I think that's easy to forget sometimes that we think that there's somehow physical manifestations of community that define us more than the actual shared experience. Oh, yeah. 
You talk a lot about some wonderful writers in this book. Kiese Lehman, yeah. Jasmine Ward, Richard Wright, Flannery O'Connor, who we're going to come to in a yes. second. Like a- <laughs> Wonderful writer, problematic human being. Very problematic. But this is part of the conversation we need to have. I mean, hip hop is also the story of the South. It's a great art. But at the same time, you've got some moments where you're like, really? You just just said that. Right. Oh, yeah. You just said that. You might actually genuinely believe that. Right. I want to talk about writers and writing and music and all of those cultural moments that do actually define community Mm -hmm. in a way that we don't often talk about. Right. I would say just to that point, so intimacy and being bound to other people, those two words are really important, right? Because intimacy is one of the most important aspects of how we become. Intimacy is not always a beautiful thing. Sometimes it's cruel. Sometimes it's violent. That's part of the history of the South. In particular, for Black and white Southerners, always intimately bound in some of the bloodiest history in the history of the world, some of the most cruel history. It moves in so many different ways. It moves through homophobia, transphobia, uh, nativism, right? All kinds of patriarchal violence, All of this is there. And we're also bound to people, which I think we often think of being bound to people as sort of the negative side of it, but binding is also part of how we constitute a sense of home and belonging. So these words that are so connected that are usually given a positive or negative slant, I think, are both. There's uh, (laughs) an album that Alan Lomax put together. He recorded sort of folk songs of the South called Murderous Home, or the irony of, you know, Toni Morrison and Beloved referring to Alabama as Sweet Home. It's the connectedness of the ugliness and the beauty is part of the story. And for me, those writers who are so significant, part of their significance is they get that. They sit right there in the simultaneity of that. They don't shy away from it. I mean, hip-hop as a genre does too. Some of it is a sensationalized version of that, which has to do with also feeding a desire. There are moments when you have to be careful about sort of what's the space between the honesty and the spectacle in the service of stereotype. That's true for though for writers too. Um, <laughs> we're all kind of dancing around that. Yeah. There is a moment in the book where you talk about being directed away from Richard Wright. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Entered higher education. And I have to say that shocked me. I know Wright's reputation sort of ebbed and flowed. Like many writers, his his reputation ebbed and flowed. But you have a JD from Harvard and a PhD in American civilization from Harvard, and you were directed away from Richard Wright. I don't even know where to start with that statement. Right. And it started in college. I mean, this this sort of idea that Native Son as a text failed because Wright wanted to create in the character Bigger Thomas, you know, a migrant from Mississippi up to Chicago who killed a young white woman and, and was on the run, that Wright wanted to create a character for whom one felt no empathy, right? A character so completely shaped by the social order that he didn't have an interior life. There was this embedded critique. Wright let his work be destroyed by his political interest in making a point. I had read right before and continued to read right after. So I already had an intimate connection with him. And I'm not saying that he's beyond critique, but my goodness, mastery of sentences, of environment, of the relationship between environment and Black life in the South. I mean, he's just, I think, unparalleled. And so that experience, there are a couple of them where I was like, you know, 
It's, it's similar with actually with the way people talked about Tuskegee, which is my family school in Booker T. Washington. I was like, yeah, you know, the stories that are being told as like the way I'm supposed to see things, my own experience is such that I'm going to be skeptical. That skepticism has been really good for me person- personally as I move through life. Yeah, he's just just a remarkable chronicler of the South. But isn't that also why we read that healthy skepticism? I mean, admitting yeah. that we don't have all of the answers that, in um, fact, someone might actually know a little more than you do. Right. Yes. I mean, this is the thing for me also with Wright, because like so many people were mad at him. And then I, I started to think about where he was from, the Black Belt, the place mm-hmm. with the, the whitest cotton and the blackest people and the, you know, the blackest earth and the whitest people like these. That's the symbolic South, but it's the most brutal part of Southern history, that relationship to land. That was home for him. He grew up hungry in a place of incredible abundance. Most of the other writers we read, Black writers of the South, didn't have that experience. And so I do think it's meaningful to listen, to attend to what is he noticing, what is he experiencing? Not that there's only one way to see anything or that he's an absolute authority, but yeah, there's a witnessing there that is very profound. And an art that makes people uncomfortable. And that's partially the role of art Mm -hmm. is to make us uncomfortable, whether it's the visual arts or the written word or music or what have you. But you have a story about Baldwin. (laughs) You read an interview (laughs) with James Baldwin, who I love the man. I love everything. Yes. I've read every possible word I could get my hands on and watched every inch of video because he's just extraordinary. Absolutely. In so many ways. But he didn't think much of Langston Hughes. And in fact, said, well, Langston Hughes talks about things the way my dad did. And we should all be reading County Cullen. And I haven't read Cullen in years. But I thought that was kind of fascinating the way Baldwin Mm -hmm. approached it. Because Hughes is Hughes. And we all have a deep appreciation for Hughes. And again, Baldwin is Baldwin. But here's this master saying, yeah, not so much that guy. Right. And part of the point of putting that story in, too, is that, yes, extraordinary people disagree. That's really important. (laughs) But also that part of what Baldwin was saying, I think, about Hughes is that he wanted his story of racial violence to have some distance. Part of what makes some of the horror, for example, that someone like Morrison shares possible to even read is the extraordinary language, right? The distance that the language allows you to have. I was fascinated. I I wouldn't necessarily critique Baldwin for this observation. I just think it's really interesting. Whereas what someone like Langston Hughes does is that he used the vernacular, but also there was a spareness. So that's still a device, right? He's not telling you all of the blood and gore. It's franker speech, but it's not ornamented. So you still get a little bit of space so that you can digest it, right? In some of the stories. There are different kinds of devices. I think that this question of how much you do in the vernacular and how much you do in a kind of more particular authorial voice is always an interesting question. I think we're still trying out different ways of doing it now. And I think it's good. Um, I think there's incredible beauty to like thinking, how do you tell the story and what is your relationship to the spoken word in the midst of it? And vernacular is really difficult to capture well on the page without sounding like a giant caricature. Yes. There are very few people who can do it without missteps. Yeah. I mean, I think this is part of the genius of both Jessamine and Kiese is that they can do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we know who you are as a writer and a researcher and a scholar. You're a professor at Princeton. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But who are you as a reader when you're not working on a book? 
Well, I'll say I'm always reading when I'm working on books. I read okay. every day. Reading is actually like feels like part of my identity. It's sort of constitutive of who I am. I mean, it is part of the story in the sense of the book, in the sense that feeling a core sense of homesickness as I was coming of age in the late 70s, 80s, this remarkable period of Black women's writing. I started reading adult literature pretty young, and I was reading these novels by people that were Southern novels short stories. And so reading actually brought me home. <laughs> and, and so I would sit on the floor of bookstores and just go through these books. And, you know, my mother was really generous. I could always get books. It's just a part of like how I live. I read voraciously. I read a lot of literature and translation. Fiction is my heart, but I also love memoir and biography. I read academic books too, but it tends to be very different. That's a more formal reading process. I don't tend to have scholarly books when I'm snuggled up in bed. <laughs> on a rainy day. But poetry, especially in the pandemic, I began to read more poetry because I just think that our sort of like the daily anxiety, all I could digest was like poems. <laughs> so read more poetry. Yeah. So it feels essential as a writer to be reading always. We've left plenty of space for listeners to discover South to America on their own because there's a lot of material in this book. And I, and again, yeah. I love the way it's structured. I love the way each place gets to stand on its own and mm -hmm. the people stand on their own. But is there anything we missed? Is there anything you want to add that you want listeners to know? Oh, well, I do want listeners to know and they will they will glean this if they open the book it's not a book to tear through and get the argument it's a request that you sit with me and you look around the way that I'm looking around and maybe notice things that are in different ways than what I notice and meditate on it and at times feel uncomfortable or argumentative or am questioning. I already got sort of a first email from someone because I had a, an excerpt published and, and saying, oh, you know, here's a really interesting part of that story and told me something that I didn't know. And I, it's a book that is an invitation to a relationship with readers and that I hope that it feels nurturing in that respect. But I also want, want readers to know that I'm an explorer as much as a teacher <laughs> in the book. I'm an explorer and a student more than anything. That's a really excellent way to sum this book up. Imani Perry, thank you so much. Thank South you. to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon Line to Understand the Soul of a Nation is out now. Thank you so much. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.